Welcome to Social Fish Dancing, a production of Coastal Roots Radio at the University of Guelph. This is the third episode of our special coverage of the impact of COVID-19 on North America's coastal fisheries and fishing communities. I do feel like we have a right to get up there and start fishing, but do I want to exercise that right? We had a, a major loss of a, of a tribal staff person. The big topic of the day is, as an essential workforce, how do we operate safely? I'm your co-host, Philip Loring. I'm joined by... Hannah Harrison. And I'm Emily D'Souza. If you're new to Coastal Roots, we're a relatively new international collaboration of communities, scholars, activists, and others who are interested in supporting the health, resilience, and sustainability of coastal communities around the world. We focus this podcast on storytelling. And this week, well, we heard some pretty heavy stories. Being social scientists, we sometimes hear some pretty hard stuff in our research. And since we're talking to people week to week for this podcast about their experiences around COVID-19, we knew that eventually we would start to hear stories of loss, but it really hit home this week. From my own point of view, I really didn't expect it to be this hard, this fast. You know, up until this point, COVID-19 has been, for me anyway, this thing, it's real, but it's out there somehow and somehow intangible, if, if you know what I mean. And, and all of a sudden, it has become very real. And and from I think that makes sharing these stories even more important because there's an increasing number of people who are getting tired and frustrated with the social distancing measures that we're taking. And I think people are starting to wonder if the staying home and the not seeing our families and all of the other various sacrifices we're making, if they're worth it. And the stories we've heard this week have really brought home for me just why we're doing this. This week really hit home for me when I spoke again with Buck Jones of the Columbia River Intertribal Fish Commission. Buck and I have been speaking weekly about the changes that he's been seeing in his community. And the first time we spoke, he had no cases in his community. And last week he shared with me that they had their first two confirmed COVID-19 cases. And this week his community tragically suffered their first loss. We uh, we had a major loss of a of a tribal staff person for our organization that was a was a tribal fisher was a, a community leader in his uh, in his village and uh, was kind of a bridge between the the native uh, native tribal fishing community and our uh, our uh, office staff uh, which is which which are not all tribal members um, he was a a lead technician that worked on many projects and was a, a, a real senior staff. So, and also, as I mentioned, a tribal fisher. So that's, that's been the biggest change uh, since we got the news late Friday night, late Saturday night. So I just can't imagine how impossibly hard this is for Buck and, and for his community. And I want to say that our whole team sends our greatest condolences out to them and, and to everyone for that matter that we've spoken to who's dealing with loss or with family members who are, are impacted by this. Uh, there are just so many layers to how people are experiencing this pandemic and there's this complexity of the experience that we're seeing that, that we really didn't see in the first couple of weeks. Yeah, exactly. And Buck and his community are now in an impossible position where they're both trying to to mourn the loss of a community member while also trying to make important decisions about the future of their fishery. Usually we have a commission meeting that is uh, every month uh, towards the end of the month and uh, 
Uh, we decided that with this COVID-19 to actually have a special commission meeting uh, on the 8th of May to address what we may have to do, you know, as far as uh, social distancing, opening up some of our uh, fishing access sites where we have tribal members that live. If if we can even open those up for people that come to by directly from the fishers. So we're going to probably have to set, you know, some guidelines uh, if we're even able to uh, have a market because it's so rapidly changing, you know, this COVID-19 that every, everyone's trying to open up and stuff like that, but they just extended the deadline uh, to open up in the state of Washington today. So that's what we're really looking at. Do you have any idea like what the implications would be on the fishing community if you weren't able to open that up to the public? It would be tough, really tough on on the fishers because uh, um, that market's been there for numerous years. It's kind of been set in motion and it, it may take some adaption, you know, of of some kind of social distancing delivery possible or whatever, but um, as we've seen in different fisheries, so it would it would be a, a big major effect, and it may be you know I think as I mentioned before we we might be able to change some of those strategies, but what the uh, other unknown is the markets that are uh, not open if there's restaurants and stuff ain't open as we've seen with uh, other fisheries, it would really be a big impact. You know, I also noticed this week that a lot of the folks we reached out to for an interview were really supportive of this idea of sharing their stories, but at a personal level, they just really didn't have the time or the emotional bandwidth to be able to talk with us. And I thought that was really particularly true in communities or even whole states that are currently in this really tough spot of deciding whether to open fisheries and how to protect people. These decisions are becoming such a deeply personal part of our realities. I've at least been keeping my eye out on the Alaska fishery um, that they've you know they've set some some guidelines for processors and from the indigenous community there's kind of some pushback where they don't want them you know they don't even really want them in there because of the a lack of the the hospitals not having the proper equipment if there is a outbreak of COVID. You know, Hannah, Buck's comments here made me wonder about what is happening in Alaska and what you're hearing from your contacts there. Yeah, well, being originally from Alaska, I do still maintain a lot of ties to the fishing communities around the states. And over the past few weeks, I've been seeing an increasing amount of discussion on social media about whether or not to open some of the state's biggest salmon fisheries and that that salmon season is coming down soon. And a lot of these conversations seem to revolve around whether people have a right to fish versus the risks of opening some of these fisheries and what that would mean for the local communities around them. Bristol Bay is actually a particularly poignant example of this. For listeners unfamiliar with Bristol Bay, it's home to the world's largest wild salmon fishery, and annual catches there are worth many millions of dollars. Yeah, that's why I think it's so interesting that the city of Dillingham, which is the regional hub for Bristol Bay, along with several local tribes, asked the Alaska governor to close the fishery this year, recalling the tremendous losses their communities experienced during the 1918 flu. Now, major fish processors are developing their own protocols for employees, and as are the state, but locals are describing this as a freight train that is bearing down on their region and rather than slowing down, it's speeding up. 
And also, I think it's really important to remember that these are largely indigenous communities, and there are echoes here of the trauma of past epidemics. One of the people we're speaking with is Stephen Curian, who, along with his wife, Jan, owns Wild for Salmon out of Bloomsburg, Pennsylvania. They've been fishing in Bristol Bay, Alaska since 2002. Stephen talked to me about this issue, that while fishing is essential to his business, no doubt, he thinks that the health of the community is even more important. Fishermen are you know, notorious whether the weather is good or bad, we're going fishing. So most people are the mindset of going fishing. I think that it's a very important time to, you know, realize that it's a privilege for us to go fish there in these native communities. And we need to do our utmost best to um, quarantine ourselves prior to going, um, making sure our crew is under strict um, quarantine as well and that we do all that we can to make sure the community doesn't get sick because of the fishing industry. I feel like the season's gonna, gonna happen as I watch um, the restrictions starting to be rolled back in different places for right or wrong. And just as a human race, we're itching to get back to work <laughs> again for right or wrong. Yeah. And, so I think it's I think the season's going to happen. Um, I hope that as fishermen we can do our due diligence and make sure that we're doing the best we can to protect the native culture in Alaska. And um, that's how I see it unfolding. No. Stephen also talked about how he would handle a disrupted or possibly canceled fishing season. Fortunately, I feel like we've always planned for um, the salmon fishery to be shut down because of the um, run size and for the um, population of the salmon. I've always planned that we would have to sit out one year. And with that, we've always paid off all of our operation, made sure that we were not overextended. And so on the fishing side, I think we're prepared for it. On the sales side, I think that's a little different story, but we're now become an online platform for sustainable proteins. So if we had to shift away from salmon for the years, our focus and still uh, supply local customers, regional customers with sustainable proteins. I think that we could um, do that in a good fashion. It's really important to note here that Stephen is fortunate to have a business model that allows him to sit out a year if he needs to. There are a lot of fishers, though, who simply can't do this. And it's entirely possible, likely even, that many are going to be facing a difficult decision that, while the right thing to do, will still have significant consequences for their livelihoods. Yeah, I've also been hearing a lot of those difficult choices being made this week. Um, I checked back in with Tracy Sylvester, who listeners may remember from prior episodes. Uh, she and her partner live in Massachusetts, but they long line as a family out of the southeast region of Alaska. She's been direct marketing her frozen stock since February of this year, and she and her husband are having some tough conversations about what to do for this upcoming salmon fishing season. We, we're not sure if we're going to be able to get to Alaska this summer. I mean, of course, we could get on a plane and go to Alaska right now, <laughs> but we don't feel comfortable doing that. And with the state trying to reopen prematurely, I'm worried that I'm not even going to be able to get up there before salmon season starts. You know, 
looking at all things considered, I don't want to, I don't want to fly up to Sitka if they're in the middle of having an outbreak or, you know, hopefully that doesn't happen. They only have one case right now, but I'm definitely alarmed to see how many people think that that doesn't matter and that they can reopen anyway. And, you know, Alaska being so spread out, each town is like an island in a way, you know, especially down in Southeast Sitka is very isolated. It's on an island. It has one hospital now. There used to be two, one closed last year, but they also have limited healthcare personnel. And, you know, we just don't want to be a part of the problem flying up. And what if we catch it on the way or spread it on the way? Um, I do feel like we have a right to get up there and start fishing, but do I want to exercise that right? As fishermen, we are essential workers, but do I want to put my kids on an airplane, fly myself and my partner and my kids up there? What if somebody is sick and decides to just go ahead and get on that plane? We don't have testing. We don't really have certainty that anybody besides ourselves is looking out for us. You know, what does it all mean socially? And, you know, like we're just realizing we're, a lot of us are experiencing this differently. You know, I'm experiencing it differently today than I was a couple days ago. It's a real roller coaster. It's like I get so excited sometimes and then other times I get so down because I'm just like, I have a family member on a ventilator in Boston right now. It's hard for me to think straight about what this all means. And I'm upset to see that places are trying to open prematurely when I just found out yesterday that this family member is on a ventilator. So I was kind of hoping we were getting over the hump here in Massachusetts. In some ways it seems like we are, but it's, it's easy to look at the charts and think, oh, we're looking good. Okay. And forget that that curve, like we're looking at is human lives, you know, but yeah, getting up to Alaska and getting out on the boat sounds really nice. Um, <laughs> just like going trolling sounds amazing right now, but I have a responsibility as an essential worker to not move forward with things that I don't feel safe, you know, even if they're saying it's safe. Now, as Tracy said, Alaska is trying to figure out how to open fisheries and other types of seasonal work. Now, there have been a whole slew of new guidelines and policies put in place by the state of Alaska, um, various individual communities, and other organizations that are, of course, trying to keep people safe while still supporting a safe and sane fishery. This week, I got in touch with Hannah Heimbach, who is a drift fisherman in Cook Inlet, Alaska, and direct markets some of her catch to her local community of Homer. Now, Hannah also works as a policy consultant in Alaskan fisheries, and she's one of many people around the state who are really grappling with these issues. So when I'm not fishing, I work in fisheries policy and consulting and do a lot of work in in connecting fishing groups to the policies that impact them. And lately, that work has been 100% COVID-related. The big topic of the day is how does the seafood industry, as an essential workforce that provides food to the state and to the nation and the globe, how do we operate safely? And how do we operate safely in remote communities that have really limited healthcare resources, that have Um, limited transportation resources in and out of the community, and that go from maybe a couple hundred residents to several thousand residents in a really short span of time when uh, these fisheries show up to operate. And the job has really been, number one, figuring out how to safely operate uh, the Alaska seafood industry in the summertime in the midst of a pandemic. And then number two, 
communicating with all of these communities and with tens of thousands of fishermen and getting everybody on the same page and comfortable with a plan that is safe and responsible. And that has been a huge challenge. I would say that one of the uplifting things is the amount of collaboration I've seen. I've seen people from every fleet, every community, every harbor around the state, on the phone, on Zoom calls, trying to figure out how, how to make it happen safely. Um, but what's been really hard too is the understandable level of fear that a lot of community members and community leaders have around you know, a large number of out of community or out of state workers um, showing up. I think we, we've had some good success in working with communities and working with the state on setting plans for vessels and plans for boat yards and processors that put some pretty strict guidelines in place, um, stricter even than what the state is asking for because the commitment to communities and the commitment to community health is so strong. You know, these are our neighbors and friends and family members too. It's definitely a challenge. It's not all figured out yet, but I feel like we are moving towards plans and solutions that can keep people safe. Um, and of course, you know, the seafood industry is really just one point of entry and, and one group within a complex community. And we're just working to do our part to keep folks safe while still providing food and essential economy to the state of Alaska. I think that Hannah has given us a lot to think about in terms of how the seafood industry moves forward from this disruption and what fisheries might look like in the time of social distancing. One final thing to think about is the emotional and personal impact of COVID-19, which Buck articulated very powerfully in our conversation, and I'm going to leave it to him to speak to that. I would just tell everybody, you know, stay at home if, that, if that's what you do. Know where, you know, that the people that you are with, that they're the most important things. You know, losing, losing a community member it really hits close to home, and I just uh, would not wish that on nobody. And uh, we can do our best to stay at home, wear a mask, wash our hands. Uh, it, it, it's it's real. That's uh, that's what I would say. Thanks for joining us. Social Fishtensing will be bringing you the voices and stories of small-scale fishermen and women from around North America for the foreseeable future. These interviews and episodes are being recorded week to week, and we aim to bring you a new one every Tuesday. To connect with the people that you've heard on this podcast, including fishermen, visit us on the Coastal Roots website at www.coastalroots.org. If you'd like to share your story with us, please send us an email to stories at coastalroots.org. Coastal Roots Radio is funded by the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada and the Errol Food Institute at the University of Guelph. We also received support from the American Anthropological Association. Today, you heard from Buck Jones, Hannah Heimbach, Tracy Sylvester, and Steve Curian. This week's music is Tunnels by Montana Skies, available on the Free Music Archive.